If you have your Bible with you this evening, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, where we'll be looking at the first nine verses, and our topic tonight is repentance. If you'll remember, we've been looking at how it is that God brings salvation to us. We look first at our own sinfulness, our need for salvation, and then God's um, regeneration of us, that He gives us new life in Christ, He gives us a new spirit, a new heart that we might then put our faith in Christ. Well, the twin of faith is repentance. You never have one without the other. If you only have one without the other, then you don't really even have that one. They always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. And they always go together. And so tonight we want to look at um, what repentance is. And so we're going to look at these first nine verses here of Luke chapter 13. So let's read together. There was some present at that very time who told Jesus, him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that You would come. That You would speak to us by Your Holy Spirit in Your Word. That You would help us, O God, all of us in here to see our need for constant repentance. That it's not just something we do once and are done, but it's something that we do day in and day out. And that we would be spurred on to live lives, O God, of repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Early on in Michelle and I's marriage, we had the opportunity to go to Big Sur, California. It's about two and a half hours south of San Francisco. And now what you need to know about our family is I'm the trip planner in the family. I'm not always the planner in other areas, but when it comes to trips, I am, and I go crazy about it. I mean, I've probably bought three or four books, you know, like Frommer's Guide, and I was talking to all our friends that we could, and one of our friends said, if you, when you go to Big Sur, you have to go to this restaurant called Nepenthes. And it was also in every guidebook that I saw for Big Sur. So we made plans to go when we were staying there and we were going to go. And the reason you wanted to go to this restaurant was because it sat on a cliff 800 feet 
above the Pacific Ocean, looking out over the ocean. Now, me and all my planning prowess made it so that we went there at night. But nonetheless, though we could not see anything, we could hear the waves. And we could smell lots of funky smells being in uh, Big Sur, California. We had already had dinner. So we go into this restaurant and we just get dessert. And I got this berry pie, but Michelle got the chocolate cake. Now this was a chocolate cake. I mean, this cake was probably, I, I seriously, I'm not exaggerating. It might have been eight inches tall. It was gigantic. And Michelle got it, and she couldn't. Uh, she didn't eat all of it in one sitting, of course. Um, and so what she did is she would put it in this package and left it in the car. And then every day around lunchtime, you know, after the sun had heated up the car, that cake was nice and warm, moist, and the icing was kind of melting. And she loved it so much that when we got back home, she called the restaurant and she said, would you please give me the recipe? And they did. Restaurants almost never do that. And um, so we made that cake a few times. And one time when we were in Philadelphia, we decided on one Saturday afternoon we were going to make it. I don't think we were having a party. I think it was just for our family. And we spent like three hours making this cake. Three layers. You have to make this special ganache ice, chocolate icing that goes in between each layer and on top and around. And we make this thing. I mean, the, the layers turn out perfect. They're like even and they don't fall apart and the icing stays where it's supposed to. And we set this thing on the center of the table for everybody to look at all the way through dinner. We get through dinner, we take all the dishes, put them in the dishwasher, and we cut everybody, you know, this gigantic piece, because it's literally, you know, eight inches tall, and we put it on plates, and we're all sitting there with our forks, our mouths watering, we're all getting ready to take it, we pour these gigantic glasses of milk, because you're going to need it if you're going to eat the whole piece, and we all go to dig in. And I can still remember the taste in my mouth a little bit. I go and I take a taste, I put it on my mouth, and it was the most bitter thing I'd ever tasted in my life. I literally spit it right back out on the plate. And as we tried to figure out what happened, I made the icing, and I used bitter chocolate instead of whatever you were supposed to use, semi-sweet or whatever, and it was nasty. We had to throw it away. It was so bad. And... We've probably all done something like that, right? Where we leave out an ingredient and it messes the whole thing up. I mean, we don't take it to the bake sale and show everybody, but it happens in our own house, right? Or we put in the wrong ingredient and it totally messes it up. Well, the same thing happens in the Christian life. If you try to be a Christian without repentance, you're going to be like that chocolate cake. You're going to be a ruin. You won't even be a... I mean, it wasn't really even chocolate cake. It was awful. It wasn't worth having. The same is true for a Christian who never practices day in and day out repentance in their life. And in reality, many of us try to do that. We think to ourselves, yes, I believe in Jesus. Praise Jesus. I believe He died for me. But when it comes to the sin in my life, let go of it? No way. And we refuse to turn away from any sin in our life. I mean, not, not the huge stuff, right? Not the stuff that's going to get you like thrown in jail or landed on the front page of the paper. But the everyday sin of pride and gossip 
and greed and lust and backbiting. Many in the church hold on to those things and refuse to let go of them. They refuse to repent of them. To repent means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. And so I want us tonight to look at this doctrine of repentance from this text and I want us to see three things from this text. First, the absolute necessity of repentance. The necessity of repentance. The fruit of repentance. And then the warning of repentance. Necessity, fruit, and warning. Let's look here. Look first at the necessity of repentance. Here's the setting. Jesus has just been teaching and some people come up to Him while He's teaching and they want to tell Him something. Something from the newspaper of the day that maybe Jesus hasn't seen, they think. They said they, they come to Him at that, it says at that very time when He's teaching and they told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so this would be like you walking up to somebody and saying, Have you heard? Have you heard about what happened in Jerusalem? And they come to tell Jesus about what had happened, this terrible act that had been carried out by some Roman soldiers against some Galileans. Evidently, they, these people from Galilee had gone up to Jerusalem. They're offering sacrifices. And in the middle of their offering sacrifices, the Roman soldiers come in and kill them so that their very own blood gets mingled up with the blood of the sacrifices that they were making. It would be like someone coming in here while we're celebrating communion and killing us and our own blood being mixed together with the elements on the floor. A heinous, awful, terrible thing. And they come to share this with Jesus And of course, when something like this happens, many of us ask, why? Why did this happen? Was it because they did something? Did they commit some heinous sin that caused God to react to them this way? Why did this happen? Why didn't God stop it? Jesus brings up another tragedy, not caused by human effort, but by natural causes, some natural tragedy. He says, verse 4, he says, Or think about those 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam, some tower in Jerusalem, fell and killed them. And the question comes, why did this happen? And what Jesus is doing is he's correcting some bad theology. He's challenging the thinking of the day. Because the thinking of the day, the theology of the day, was that if something bad happens to you, then you must have done something to deserve it. And if something especially awful happens to you, you must have done something especially awful. Right? Because they're saying, Jesus, look at Jesus' response in verse 2, in the second half of verse 4. He says to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And of course the answer is, yes. Or he says, Do you think that they 
those that the tower fell on were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And the popular thinking of the day was, yes, they were. Because it wouldn't have happened to them unless they were. They had the same theology that Job's friends had. So that in chapter 4, verse 7, Job's friend said to him, Who that was innocent ever perished? Nothing like this would happen to someone who's innocent. This only happens to people who do awful things. Or even Jesus' disciples had this thinking in them. Right? In John chapter 9, there was this man who, had been, who was blind from birth and his disciples came to Jesus and said, uh, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born this way? See, the idea was that if something terrible happens to you, you must have done something to deserve it. One commentator put it this way. At that time, it was a generally accepted notion that whenever calamities visited people, this was a proof that they were exceptionally sinful. And that for this reason, God allowed them to be overtaken for such disasters. If you think about it, really, a lot of our society thinks this way. I mean, it's the idea of karma. That this is how life works, right? If you do really bad things, really bad things are going to happen to you. If you do really good things, really good things are going to happen to you. That that's just the way it works. And Jesus is writing to say, no, this is bad theology. This is bad theology. And Jesus goes to correct it. And He does it. He teaches them now good theology in two ways. He says two things in response to this thinking. First, He says these things did not happen because these people were worse sinners than the rest of us. Look, look back at the text. Verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you too repent, you will all likewise perish. Or verse 4. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you also repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says these things did not happen because they were worse sinners than you. These things didn't happen to them because they, were, they had done something terrible and it didn't happen to you because you had done something good. That's not the way it works. Rather, he says, they were no worse sinners than the rest of the people in Galilee. And the others were no worse sinners than the rest of the people in Jerusalem. But instead, of course, the teaching of Scripture is what? That we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. That there is not one of us who does good. That there is none of us who seeks after God. That there is not one of us that understands the things of God. Instead, we are all of us under sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Which leads to Jesus' second point. That the point of these things, the point that tragedy should push us to think about is not 
Did they do something to deserve this? But that could have been me. That when we see tragedies, whether they be natural disasters or things caused by the violence of men, we ought to think, that could have been me. Right? They should have thought, I was in Jerusalem just last week walking by the Tower of Siloam. It could have, fell on, it could have fallen on me. I was offering my sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem just a month ago. That could have been me. I could have been the one that perished like they did. I could be standing before my Maker right now like they are. That's what Jesus says that they should cause us to think about. That Hurricane Katrina could just as easily have veered southeast and gone up through Georgia. That the flooding that happened in Colorado earlier this year could have just as easily happened here. That the accident that we read about in the paper that happened out on I-16 could just as easily been me. That when I decide I need to make a quick run to Walmart to get some things for dinner, that I could get T-boned at an intersection and one or more of my family members be killed. It could be me. That's what Jesus is saying. When things like this happen, it shouldn't be asking why, what was God doing, or why did these pe- it happen to these people, but it could have been me. And then to ask the question, are you ready for it to be you? Those of you who are going on the cruise, are you ready that something might happen? For all of us who have to drive home tonight, are you ready for it to happen? None of us knows the day or the hour, but every one of us is guaranteed it is going to happen to you. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 50 years. Are you ready? That's Jesus' point. In verse 11, the word for offenders, in my version, I don't know what your version says, is the word for debtor. The same word that we use in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's meant to make us think that we are all debtors because of our sin. And have you dealt with that debt? Of course, how do you deal with it? Well, you only deal with it in one way, by faith and repentance. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance towards sin. Have you dealt with it? Jesus says... Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Well, what is this repentance? This is the second point. The fruit of repentance. After Jesus calls everybody to repentance, He, in His usual fashion, tells a parable. Verse 6. He tells them this story, this parable, about a man... He uses agricultural imagery because that was their society. He says, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He's telling this story about a man who goes out and when you plant a vineyard, you do all that you can to make sure that it's going to be successful. Alright, you, you buy a good piece of land. You go to the market and you buy good vines. Or in this case, you buy a good fig tree to plant in it. Why he had a fig tree in the vineyard, I'm not sure. But you plant a good one. And you cultivate around it. You put fertilizer on it. You make sure it gets enough water. And year after year, he's come to this fig tree and what? No fruit. Year after year after year, no fruit. And what Jesus is talking about is His people. You often see this imagery in the Scripture where He uses the, uh, the picture of a vineyard or a fruit tree to describe His people. So that in Matthew 21, 18, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem during the last week of His life, He runs upon this fig tree and it's all got all these green leaves. It has all the signs that it should be filled with fruit. And He goes up to it and it's barren. And He curses it. And it's a symbol for His people, for Israel. That this idea that God has cultivated His people and done all these things for them, calling them to repentance, calling them to live for Him, and again and again He comes to them and there's no fruit. You see it in Hosea chapter 9 where He talks about like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season talking about His people. Or Isaiah 5, talking about the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. Even John the Baptist says to the people coming to be baptized, do you remember it? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That repentance is something that we see in us. It should have visual signs. Well, what are those Signs. What are those things? Well, repentance itself is, like we said, a turning away from sin toward God. But I want to give you four characteristics or four elements of repentance. Repentance is first brokenness over sin. Brokenness over sin. It's being sorry in your heart, not just saying sorry, but in your heart being sorry broken over what you have done. It's not being sorry that you got caught, right? It's not being sorry that you have to face some kind of consequences. But instead, it's being broken over what you did. Over the sin itself. That you are sorry that you did that thing. Not sorry that you got caught, but sorry that you did it. Right? How many times do we, in talking to our children, they do something to another one, right? And then we say, okay, you have to say you're sorry. And they're like, sorry. Like they're over there and they're like, sorry. They're not looking at them. Are they really sorry that they did that? No. When you're really sorry, you feel it inside yourself. You're broken over it. Right? If I, if I cheat on a math test, if I cheat on a math test and I get caught, 
And I'm only sorry because I got a zero on the test. Is that repentance? No. Real repentance is being sorry that I did it because I'm sorry that I did it. And I'm willing to face any consequences there are for it. Secondly, real repentance moves from this brokenness over sin to a confession of our sin. When you're truly sorry for sin, you will go to the person that you've offended and confess your sin to them, asking them for forgiveness, pleading with them for forgiveness. Being a Christian is knowing that while you may have sinned against another person, though, ultimately your sin is first and foremost against who? God. Think of that great psalm of David's of repentance over his sin, of defiling Bathsheba and murdering her husband. There's a line in there that always just baffles me unless you see this. David says, Against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. You see, he's acknowledging that first and foremost, O God, every sin that I do is against you. And he goes to God pleading with Him for forgiveness. He goes laying it all out in all of its dirtiness and ugliness before God. I have sinned. Forgive me. That's what real repentance is when you will gladly go and confess your sin to the one that you have offended, including God Himself. Thirdly, repentance also includes an apprehension, a grasping of the mercy of God to us in Christ. What is it that really would drive us to repentance? That psalm that David writes, Psalm 51, starts with these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. What drives us to repentance is seeing the beauty and the glory of the steadfast love of our God in Christ. That He stands there ready with His arms open waiting for us to come to Him and plead with Him God, forgive me my sin. And then he says, and then John tells us what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, real repentance doesn't just deal with the sin, but it also sees God ready to forgive us. And then lastly, real repentance includes a changed life. You can't just say, I'm really sorry for my sin, confess it, and even see the mercy of God. You have to see also real change. This is the point of the fig tree, right? That you see that fruit of life change in someone. With real repentance, there is a resolve to stop sinning and to change. Not, not perfection, but a resolve. A resolve to start to live in obedience to God. And this is where I think that often in the American church we fail. We think we've repented if we have said we're sorry and we feel bad. Pastor Barnes likes to ask the question when we're interviewing people. Would it be repentance if I stole your bike 
And then you, con- you came and confronted me and I said, I'm sorry, I stole your bike. Is that real repentance? No. Because what? He's still got the bike. It's not real repentance until he's saying, you're right, please forgive me, here's the bike. A great biblical illustration of this is Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? We all remember Zacchaeus because he's this wee little guy who climbs up in a sycamore tree, right? But he's a terrible guy. He's one of the most hated people in all of Israel. He's a traitor. He's a thief. He's a sinner. But he meets Jesus. How do you know that Zacchaeus has really met Jesus, that he's really repented of his sin? Because you see, changed life. Jesus goes to have dinner at Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus stands up in front of everyone. And he says to Jesus, he says, I'm going to give half of everything that I own to the poor. Now you know that this is real repentance because what would drive a man to do what Zacchaeus did? Well, what drove Zacchaeus as a tax collector to sell out his people to make every one of them hate him was his love of money. So he deals with the very thing that has captured his heart his whole life. Money. He says to Jesus, I'm going to give away half of everything that I have to the poor. And not only that, anyone who I have wronged. Now who do you think he's wronged? A lot of people. I'm not just going to give them back what I owe. I'm going to give them back fourfold. Which is the most stringent requirement in the Old Testament of someone who's stolen from someone. Four times what I took from them. This is the fruit that you see. And so the question comes to all of us. Where's the fruit? Do you see fruit on your tree of repentance? Every one of us should be able to think of things where we're repenting. This is not something that we do just at the beginning of the Christian life or we just do once, once uh, or twice a month when we have the Lord's Supper. It's something that we are constantly doing because what? We're constantly sinning. So do you see fruit on your tree? That brings us to the last thing, the warning of repentance. It always amazes me to hear people talk about how you know the God of the Old Testament was judgment and wrath. But Jesus, He's all about love and forgiveness. When you hear warnings from Him like this all the time, verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about unless you repent, you will go where you think they are. You will fall underneath the wrath and judgment of God forever and ever unless you repent. Look down at verse 8. After the owner told his servant to cut down the tree, his servant answered him and he said, Sir, 
Let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it, right? He's going to aerate it, dig up the bad dirt, maybe add some good dirt, and then he's going to add, he's going to put manure on it, add fertilizer to it. Do all the things that they know to do to hopefully cause this tree to bear fruit. And he said, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And the warning to us is Israel. Because that's who Jesus is talking to. That's the fig tree later on in the Gospel. It's the last week of Jesus' life that He curses. It's a picture of Israel. And most of Israel did not believe. They did not repent and turn from their sin and turn to faith in Christ and follow Him. They rejected Him. They refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge that they were all sinners Just like everyone else, they refused to think that they were the same as the Gentiles. And they refused to repent. They thought of themselves as better than everybody. The question comes to us, how do we think of ourselves? Do we walk around campus thinking, I'm better than them? Do we walk through Walmart or through the small or through Bilo and think to ourselves, I'm better than them? Jesus says, no, you're not. All of us have sinned and have earned the wage of death. And He says, repent. See your sin and all its heinousness and ugliness. Feel its awfulness in your heart and in your soul. Confess it to God. See God's open arms ready to receive you. And then go and make any restoration necessary. Repent. That's the fruit of the Gospel in the life of the believer. For his whole life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask for you to work in us, O God. We know that left to ourselves, O God, we will not repent. We will not either see the awfulness of our sin or turn from it. So we ask, O God, that you would come and show us the awfulness of our sin. And drive us to a true repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.